Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Yes, I can hear the sizzling of those hot dogs and hamburgers getting ready already. We're headed into the 4th of July weekend, Independence Day. Something to be grateful for, this great country, this great democracy, our great leaders, and all that makes this country the most extraordinary country in the world. Sure, it's been a tough few months with COVID and the protests and the George Floyd death. For all the things that we have wrong, we have so much more that is right, and uh, we should be celebrating this incredible holiday uh, with our friends and family, knowing that America will get past this difficult time. We will rise up. We will be restored. We will find unity and solidarity again in what we do in the common cause that is American. Uh, the common cause that is America. There's nothing about our democracy that isn't great, that can't be fixed, that can't be improved upon, can't be built upon. We just need to reach across the aisle, find friends, remind everyone that we're Americans first, we're Democrats, Republicans, Independents second, uh, and let's let's join in hands uh, as Americans and make this country better. Let's fix what's concerning us, let's tackle what's wrong, and let's move on and make a better future for our children and grandchildren. That's a better thing. Now, today, I've got a very special guest, Svetlana Lovka. Svetlana Lovka. You maybe have never heard of her, but she has one of the most harrowing tales of the Russia collusion story. A woman who was smeared, who was accused of being a honeypot trap, a Russian spy trying to entrap General Michael Flynn. Uh, there were headlines, there were investigations, there were interviews. But in the end of the day, not a single thing that was said about Svetlana Lovka was right. It was a smear job designed to get Mike Flynn taken down. And she joins us to tell her story. It's one of the first times that she's been on air talking about this. Um, and what I like about this, and we're not going to do a monologue today. We're going to go right to the interview because this is going to be a long interview. Uh, when she realized that she was wronged, when she realized that she had been uh, maligned unfairly, that the power of the state had wrongly pursued her without cause, without justice. Uh, rather than fold up and call it quits, rather than hunker down and hide away, she did what she does best. She's a historian. She was born in Russia, raised in England, is an English citizen, uh, is a uh, 
respected author, a respected researcher. Here's one of the funny things about her. She worked on research projects with both MI5 and the FBI, both of their official historians. Those agencies knew that she had been vetted, that she was okay, that she wasn't a Russian spy, and yet they allowed the silliness of the Russia case to smear her for a while. But what she did, she buckled down and she did what she does best. She's a researcher and she's taken all of these declassified documents over the last three years that have come out and she's figured out each aspect of who harmed her, who maligned her, who wrongly created a false story about her and General Michael Flynn. You're not going to want to miss this. This is a powerful, powerful story. It's a story that reminds us all that when you're down and people are beating down on you, facts are a stubborn thing. Research, hold your ground, come back at folks, and you'll be uh, okay. And I think that's what Svetlana really uh, reminds us of. Her story is remarkable. I hope you enjoy it. We're going to skip the monologue. We're going to skip the news headlines today. We're going to go right after this commercial break to our interview with Svetlana Lofka. You're going to want to hear every word of what she has to say. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest. And, you know, we've talked on this show for some time about many of the the victims of the Russia collusion hoax. Uh, We've talked about Carter Page. We've talked about George Papadopoulos. Most recently, we've been spending a lot of time talking about Michael Flynn, but I'm going to bring on this show in a second here, somebody who may be one of the biggest victims of all, Svetlana Lakova. You've never heard of her probably, or if you have, it's only because of some scurrilous headlines, but she's a very successful academic in London, and she gets dragged into the Russia case in ways that are almost unimaginable. Svetlana, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Don. Your story is uh, remarkable, and uh, I've heard a little bit of it because we've been talking, and I've uh, gotten your great book, The Spider, which everyone, if you want to find out what really happened in the Russia collusion hoax, how it was all set up before the FBI got involved, this is the book to read. But uh, let's, why don't we talk a little bit, just for a second, let's introduce you to our listeners who may not have had a chance to, to look at your bio. You've been an extraordinarily successful uh, researcher, academic. Uh, you've worked with the FBI uh, in, in doing some work on Russian spies and archive and history work. Uh, could you tell our listeners just a little bit about your really distinguished career? Well, thank you very much for your kind words, John. So before I became the unfortunate character in this saga, sorry, saga, that's Russiagate or Spygate or the Russian investigation, I was actually a relatively boring person that nobody uh, really heard of other than people who are interested in, in history and in particular history of intelligence. I was a fellow at Cambridge University in England. Um, so Cambridge is the third best university in the world. World. I ended up in Cambridge uh, when I was just 18 years old. I re-immigrated from, from Russia, uh, where I was born, and I became a British citizen. And the proudest achievement of my life was to get a place to study history at the University of Cambridge. I studied modern European history, and then I did my master's in the same subject, um, and specifically focusing on intelligence studies, because at that point, uh, we're talking, uh, you know, early 2000s, the Soviet archives have recently been opened up 
they've been become declassified. And so my professor, my mentor, uh, Professor Christopher Andrew, who's um, was both the uh, head of history faculty at Cambridge, but also he's the prominent uh, intelligence historian. For example, he's the official historian of the MI5, which is the British Security Services. He asked me to help him with this newly opened archives because I'm a Russian speaker, native Russian speaker, and also because um, uh, I showed you know, talent as a historian. And so that's where I was wrote my master's on that. Um, and we're talking about you know events that happen in 1900s to 1940s, uh, so a very long time ago. And I wrote my master's of that, and then I was in the process of writing my uh, PhD. And I was, you know, having a very, very good academic life. So for, for somebody who's a relatively young researcher, I was getting a lot of, uh, you know, praise for my work. I was published in academic journals. I was teaching uh, Cambridge University students. And I also, at some point, Professor Christopher Andrew in 2014 suggested that some of the material that I found whilst writing my PhD from the old Soviet archives was so outstanding that he suggested that we co-write the book together. So um, if we look at my life, you know, before all of this, if you look at my life in 2015, I'm, you know, I'm teaching, I'm doing my research, and I'm writing a book with a best-selling author. So uh, in terms of the, you know, academic uh, credentials, this is, you know, this is as, as, as amazing as, as, as one's life can be. It really is an amazing career. And during the course of that, you not only were working for the, were with the official historian of the MI5, you were also uh, working for the official historian. You had a project with the official historian of the FBI, right? So you had two connections to some of the world's greatest spy agencies, people who trusted you to help interpret books and, and help tell narratives about the, the history of the U.S.-Soviet relations. Well, that's correct. So uh, Cambridge University, of course, attracts a number of distinguished guests and uh, people from you know, various institutions who like to collaborate with Cambridge University researchers. And so, uh, you know, FBI were one of the group of people who were very interested in, in the research I was doing, because, um, you know, in, in my particular case, I was writing about the events that happened in 1930s, uh, so right. nearly 100 years ago. But at the same time, the techniques the, um, the 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 spy craft um, that doesn't change, um, and so th they were very interested in in, in that in, in that. Um, and I actually so for my first book and also for my for my um, dissertation, I was using a lot of not just Soviet archives, but I was also um, using um, FBI archives. Um, and uh, from that perspective, actually, the FBI were very helpful to me because um, it was quite difficult to you know obtain uh, uh, those old records. But um, I had a lot of help from that because. My research was con con considered important. Also, rather ironically, uh, my research ended up its public information on the CIA reading list. So for new CIA intelligence officers, uh, my book is required reading. So uh, in effect, I was I was living you know, in the West for a British citizen for many, many years and was considered the go to person uh, for uh, expertise on intelligence history matters. Well, from that, it also, I just want to make a quick aside. If you're really interested in, in learning how we got to the Cold War, uh, Svetlana's book on uh, Felix Drzinski, who was the founder of the uh, Soviet Intelligence Service, uh, the, the predecessor to the KGB, it is a must-read book, The Spy Who Changed um, 
history, right? The Spy Who Changed History, as I remember, is the book title. Well, that's right. But actually, th th thank you, John, for pointing that out. So the book starts with the founding of the security services. But actually, John, um, what it continues into is it tells a story, which is why I was working closely with him. FBI records, it then goes on to the story about 1930s when a bunch of Soviet students entered American universities, including Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and Harvard. And they were engineers, and but among them, there were some spies, there were some intelligence officers, and they were there to get American uh, technology. And so, actually, some of those intelligence officers later became involved in acquiring the biggest secrets of them all, which is the atomic bomb. And so my book shows how it got to the point where Soviets were so successful at uh, taking or buying or stealing uh, American technological uh, secrets. And through that, I tell the story about, you know, this kind of love-hate relationship that, you know, Russia and America had throughout the history, because, of course, Russia and the U.S. were allies in the Second World War. But then, of course, the relationship uh, deteriorated, you know, in the Cold War. And that's the book that I put together through a life of one individual who ended up in America as a student at the MIT. It's amazing. And you have people like the former head of MI6, uh, uh, Sir Richard Darelove, people uh, saying that this book is a must read, right? It's required reading now. So and a remarkable start to your career. And then all of a sudden, when the Russia scandal starts here in the United States, you are smeared unfairly. You're portrayed as a Russian spy, even though the FBI and uh, MI5 know that's not true. Um, you're, you're, it's suggested that you were some sort of honeypot trap to get Mike Flynn uh, compromised by the Russians, and you go through this extraordinary two-year horrible uh, uh, extravaganza, which it turns out not a single story, not a single claim by the so-called intelligence operatives turned out to be true. And I want to walk back now and start how that horrible history began, how that pivot becomes. And if I remember correctly uh, from your book and from our conversation, the the real marker, the beginning of this uh, silly assault on your reputation is December 2014, right? Is that, tell us what happened that month. Well, so um, um, the December 2016, so that's just after the election. And then January right. 2017, so basically months after the election. Of, of course, I don't know any of that. Uh, um, I'm living in England. And I just given birth to my first child and I um, um, am writing, finishing up my first book, The Spy Who Changed History that we just discussed. So that's quite, you know, incredible two things that I, I'm, I'm, you know, I had to do. Right. And suddenly I start receiving very strange emails and phone calls um, in, uh, in 2017 from the top U.S. publications in a coordinated way. Now, remember, I'm living in England. I'm virtually unknown to anyone other than those who are interested in history. And suddenly, uh, people like David Ignatius of Washington Post and New York Times and Wall Street Journal and The Guardian in the UK, within 48 hours of each other, are suddenly getting in touch with me. And they all know my email address, they know my name, and they are asking me about my relationship with General Flynn. Now, just to take one step back, I met General Flynn once, and I'll, I'll come back to that, but I met him once when he was on an official visit to Cambridge University in 2014. 
So that's three years previously. And there was nothing unusual about that because as we discussed in the first part, part of the program, uh, Cambridge University attracts dignitaries and people come all the time. And we had, you know, right. since General Flynn, his successor at the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, visited Cambridge and uh, wanted to meet with me. We had, you know, Deputy Director of the CIA coming over, like we have, as, as well as, um, you know, academic and political figures. So that's quite normal, right? Nothing, nothing unusual about that. Other than three years afterwards, which is in 2017 now, I suddenly get all these very strange inquiries about a relationship with General Flynn. And then I start getting colleagues calling me up uh, at Cambridge University, professors, saying something that this journal has been calling them up and talking about affair, affair with General Flynn. And I'm just absolutely gobsmacked because, you know, here I am sitting at home with a newborn, trying to finish my book and somehow, and, and I'm looking at my husband, I'm looking at my baby, and apparently I'm having this affair uh, with the United States general who was recently appointed as national security advisor in, in, in the United States. And the whole thing just beggars belief. So I don't know what to do, frankly, at this stage. And I'm also not well after childbirth. So my... Um, my partner, my husband, you know, takes over and he consults lawyers because it feels like the story is ridiculous, right? But the, the level of assault, the coordination just feels very, very suspicious. So he gets in touch with the lawyers and sends out on my behalf a statement that I absolutely do not have an affair, didn't have an affair with Jennifer Flynn and that I only met him once in my whole life in 2014 and basically threatening litigation for anyone who dared to print such a thing. And then it doesn't stop there because no matter like what we try to say, include you know, so for example, just, just one example is that my husband picked me up from the dinner with General Flynn in 2014. I also didn't sit next to General Flynn. I sat across the table from him at the dinner in 2014 when he came to Cambridge University. And yet the newspapers don't care, right? They're just publishing story after story, uh, which show that um, I approached him, that I sat next to him at the dinner, that I attempted to recruit him on behalf of Russian intelligence. And I just don't know what to do because none of that is true, but it seems like the newspapers just were not going to stop. So I start legal action against them and um, they, they, they print some corrections, um, including not of the Guardian prints that there is, no, there is no question about me being connected with Russian intelligence. But of course, by that stage, and that was all, I believe, pre-planned and coordinated, social media picks the story up. Also, other publications pick it up. Up. And so my name, my face uh, is plastered all over uh, front pages uh, in UK. And it then uh, becomes a complete nightmare because people start, you know, knocking on, on my doors and my neighbor's doors about the spy, you know, clutching my photograph. Um, and then the next thing that happens is that, you know, my address gets published online. Um, and remember, at this stage, I'm, I'm, I'm at home with a, with, a, with a few months old baby, right? So my address gets published online. I start getting threats and the police takes it very seriously. So we have visits from police. And basically, I'm, I'm, having, I'm having to leave. I'm having to leave. First, we change the address and then we change the country because it looks like there just wasn't going to be any, any, any stopping of, this, uh, of all of this. It's, uh, it's just amazing. People who have not gone through this can't possibly imagine the experience of what happens when the media turns on you and it becomes a media mob. And you're, as you said, your life's turned upside down. Here you are trying to raise your newborn and, and finish a book. And all of a sudden, 
uh, a false allegation gets this extraordinary uh, uh, sense of its uh, attention, and uh, you're you're fighting against a beast that's thirty times larger than you. I, I've interviewed a lot of people who've gone through this experience, and unless you've gone through it, you have no idea what a tidal wave is until you, until you get hit by something like this. So I want to uh, walk back first uh, for the benefit of our uh, listeners who sometimes maybe don't remember all the names. Remember that Stefan Halper is the other confidential informant in the FBI Russia case. So we've all know the most famous one from Great Britain, Christopher Steele, the former MI6 agent. We know what his dossier uh, had, and we know how bad that turned out to be and how it misled the FISA court. But Stefan Halper is the second informer informant. He's an academic. He's worked for various intelligence agencies. Uh, he was working for the Office of Net Assessments inside the Pentagon when he's uh, at some point engaged by the FBI, it looks like in the spring, summer, or fall of 2016. And he's targeting people like Papadopoulos and Carter. Uh, page. And uh, so he was at working at the control and behest of the FBI. And we're going to get into his track record in a second, because his record as an informant has some of the same hallmarks that we saw with Christopher Steele, some of the red flags that uh, the Democrats and those who perpetrated this false story don't talk about. But I want to go back now, because you've laid out the moment you get hit by that tidal wave. It's in 2014 that you go to Cambridge. Just talk about the importance of what happened there why December 2014 became so important to this false narrative about you. Yeah, sure. So um, in 2014, in February 2014, we, uh, it's announced that a, well, it's announced actually a little bit before, but it's confirmed that a very important visitor is going to attend Cambridge University. So the visitor is General Michael Flynn, who at that point is the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency for basically military intelligence for President Obama. And not only General Flynn himself is is a, is a, is a really really important guest for Cambridge, but also his department is 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 really important for us because for a very long time we had a collaboration between Cambridge University and the Department of Defense. In fact, there is a old airbase um, in you know about one hour away from Cambridge, which has been converted into the NATO command center for Europe, and a lot of DIA people are stationed there, and they actually also at the same time in parallel were studying for PhDs at Cambridge. And so we had a joint working group between the DIA and Cambridge. And so the idea for the visit was, well, General Finn was on an official visit to Europe. He was visiting a number of European countries, including England, including uh, London. Uh, But also he specifically came came to visit us Cambridge to continue our uh, cooperation and also actually, uh, you know, uh, in terms of budget, probably allocate a small budget for our joint research project. So the dinner was going to be hosted by Sir Richard Dearlove. So Richard Dearlove used to be the head of MI6, so that's uh, UK's uh, secretary to UK's version of CIA. And after he retired from the from the MI6, he became the master of a college in Cambridge called Pembroke College, and he's responsible for hosting General Flynn. And the dinner is arranged at his private lodge. Uh, kind of his private college within Cambridge. And then the second distinguished uh, host is 
Christopher Andrew. So he's my professor, my mentor of 20 years. And he is the official historian of the MI5. So this is the uh, UK's official, sorry, this is the UK uh, internal security service. So basically two very, very high-ranking individuals. They organized a dinner and other guests are also distinguished, including you know various members of the DIA. And then some of the research, some of the Cambridge researchers, a selected group of, if I may say, well, it's, it's not me calling myself that, but it's how we are described as sort of brilliant young researchers, they're invited to, to that dinner to show off the, 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 the Cambridge expertise. And our names get taken down one month in advance of the Flynn dinner, of the general Flynn dinner, and they get checked out. So we have to like submit uh, our names and the defense, Department of Defense is corporate so they can go for us. So I assume that they would, there was background checks. Because, of course, you know, it's the head of defense intelligence agency, right? And uh, obviously, I'm sure British security services would also check us all out at the same time. So then comes the night of the, of the visit, which is February 28, 2014. And initially, General Flynn gives a presentation, a very interesting presentation to Cambridge University. And in that presentation, he describes, you know, the, the role the DIA has and also some of the successes that him and the DIA achieved in the various wars, you know, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, and then also in, in intelligence. And it was a very interesting presentation because he was very unusual. He was very dynamic, uh, full of good ideas. He was a huge success to the Cambridge researchers. And then he discussed, you know, some of the challenges that the intelligence community is facing going forward, including, you know, battle for the resources, natural resources, and including, interestingly enough, um, you know, the right of social media, among other things. Anyway, so that was his presentation. And then after the presentation, uh, there was this private dinner. At the private dinner, obviously, all the places were preset, like who sits where. And it was a very, uh, you know, uh, beautiful occasion. There was an ancient 14th century college in a private room with, you know, beautiful candlelight and uh, individually printed menus honoring General Flynn. And I was set across the table from General Flynn and one down. Now, usually somebody like myself, the relatively junior people in the group would be sat at the end of the table. But because I was the only female in the room, the British tradition is that the female, if she's only one, sits next to the host. So the host was Richard Dearlove. The host sits across the guest of honor. So Richard Dearlove was sitting across the table from Michael Flynn. And I was sat on the right to Richard Dearlove. And then towards the end of the dinner, Christopher Andrew, my mentor, asked me to show a copy of a document that I recently found in the Soviet archives because it was a fascinating document and he wanted the group, in particular General Flynn, to, to see it. So I had the document on my iPad. I always carry my iPad with me with all of my you know, scanned documents because I'm forever working, I'm writing a PhD and I'm teaching and the document was a postcard it was a postcard that was sent by Joseph Stalin now we all heard of Joseph Stalin of course as being as one of the greatest dictators of the 20th century but what was interesting about that specific document is that it was written by a young Stalin in 1912 and at that stage that was way before the revolution actually won in Russia so he was on the run he was one of the um, you know 
organizers of the revolution. Um, and he was on the run from Tsarist secret police because he organized uh, you know, various strikes around Russia. And so he then had to take a passport, basically somebody else's passport under, under somebody else's name of his friend, and use that to escape abroad. And so then he needs to write back to his friend and say that he safely arrives. But he knows that he's under surveillance from Russian secret police. So he buys a postcard in the museum and then he writes a message. And the message is addressed to his friend's girlfriend so that secret police doesn't intercept it. And it's just full of kind of jokey messages, joking around. But basically the purpose of it is to say that he safely escaped from surveillance. And that is written in 1912, and it's in Stalin's personal handwriting. So that document, for those who are interested in history, and in particular intelligence history, is absolutely incredible, because this is where we see the man who later became the, the head of his own intelligence agency, one of the most uh, you know, well-known and powerful ones. Here he is as a young revolutionary on the run from, from the intelligence agency. So that was the documents to show as a sort of, you know, cognitive dissonance example of cognitive dissonance to General Flynn, which I did and I told that story. Now, because he was set across me from on a, on a, at a rather big table, I passed my iPad to Sir Richard Dillard, who passed the iPad to General Flynn across the table. And then I told that story to, to the group, uh, including General Flynn. And he was fascinated by that document. And he said, oh, can you send me a copy of, of, that, of that file? And I said, sure. And I sent it to him and to his, copying his assistant at the DIA. Then I forwarded that email to Christopher Andrew. And then that really is it. So then suddenly, you know, some security arrives and it's the end of the dinner and Jennifer needs to go. So I catch him on the way out. So he's shaking hands with Richard Dearlove and Christopher Andrew, thanking them for the dinner. So at that point, I take a picture of them and right. off he goes with his security. And we stay behind the dinner uh, as a group to discuss uh, how successful the dinner was. And that's it. Yeah. Now that's an important fact that you stayed behind because we would later find out in 2017, 2018, that uh, the FBI and others were told that you actually left the dinner with General Flynn, right? That's where the whole honeypot bogus theory starts to come in. Uh, could you tell our listeners uh, just how wrong and how off that claim was? Sure. So what happens next is... Um unknown to me uh, at that point, unknown to me at that point, we actually had an FBI informer within our midst. So remember, this is a Cambridge academic world that's very, very quiet, far removed from, you know, hustle and, you know, of the, of the big cities, but also there's no politics other than the politics of academics. Our research study group is very closely knit. So every week uh, on Fridays, we would meet in a smallish room and discuss our research. And it's a collegiate system where everyone is sharing research with each other, everyone is collaborating, everyone's very friendly. And there was one man amongst us called Stefan Halper, who wasn't friendly at all. He was this American professor. He was sort of retired and we knew very little about him, which was kind of strange because usually everyone else knows everything about them. It's like a little village, right? And he, the only thing we know about him at that stage is that he's connected, well, that he served for, for a number of uh, president, U.S. presidential administrations in the past, including Nixon and, and Bush and, and Reagan. And he was always boasting about that. And we also knew that his father-in-law was Ray Klein, who was one of the founders of the CIA. 
And that's kind of really what all we knew about him. So he was supposed to be this academic, but there was very little, by the way, of academics around him. So he, for example, didn't regularly contribute to academic studies, which normally would be, you know, a given. Right. Um, And he was also not really involved in the regular, like he would attend the seminar every every week, our research seminar, but he'd never get engaged in, in an academic discussion. So I'll give you one example is I found some really important documents in the Stalin archive, I was presenting to the group. So he arrives at my lecture, sits in the front row, and then he sleeps throughout it and snores really loudly, you know, spreading himself around. And he's a really, really big man. And he's just being like really obnoxious. It's really unusual for Cambridge. I mean, unheard of. So he snores loudly throughout my lecture. And then periodically he kind of wakes up, shouts something out and then and then falls back asleep. And that's Stefan Halper. So uh, nobody liked him. Um, but he was some kind of, he had that really weird aura of somebody who's very powerful. But when you ask people about him, they would just avert their eyes. Nobody wanted to discuss him. And for some reason, he was very close with Richard Dillard, which was very strange because Richard Dillard is a you know, very upstanding man, very you know, respected man. And he was close to somebody quite unpleasant. And the kind of conversation around Cambridge was that Harper was very wealthy. Uh, he had a lot of money with him um, and he donated a lot of money to Cambridge University and that's why university tolerated him, which now, unfortunately, we know that the money actually came from you, the taxpayer. But at that point, we just thought that's that's his money. And so basically, everyone just sort of tolerated him. So Svetlana, let me just explain that to the American uh, or to the listeners here. So Senator Grassley has produced records from ONA showing that the trips that Stefan Halper took to Cambridge to London uh, were funded by the Pentagon and the Office of Net Assessment, which is the Pentagon's think tank. And that's an ongoing area of inquiry for the Senate. They want to know why um, Mr. Halper was charging those trips to uh, to the taxpayer. But um, let's go back. We've got about 12 minutes left, and I know we want to cover a lot of ground. So you, you, you have this interaction with Halper at this event, um, and then the next time you have a, what, what becomes a significant interaction – uh, is around the time that Mike Flynn is named the National Security Advisor for the Trump campaign. I think it's in January 2016. Can you tell our listeners what happens? Uh, do you get a, a new inquiry from um, Stefan Halper at this point? So the next thing that happens is that Stefan Halper, who, as I've just mentioned, never showed any interest in me or my research. In fact, he's always rude to me, etc. He retires from Cambridge University in 2015. And then he, for some reason, re-emerges in early 2016. And he is asking through my professor to have a private dinner with me at my professor's house. Now, as I've just mentioned, this is a man who showed no interest in, in me or my research. And he's, by the way, in his 70s. And he's suddenly desperate to um, have a dinner with me. Um, I refuse to attend that dinner because of what I've just described, the guy being really rude and obnoxious. Um, and the reaction of my professor to that refusal to have dinner is absolutely extraordinary. And I declined numerous dinners in the past for all sorts of reasons. And he just goes absolutely crazy about that. He shouts at me. He never shouted at me in 20 years that I've known him. And he keeps insisting 
that I have a dinner with him. Basically, it, it, it becomes a point where he is threatening my professor, is, threat, is threatening to cancel book contract with me if I don't attend this dinner. But I still don't, just because I don't like help. I don't know it's an operation. We now, of course, know that that happened, that that, that approach happened, just as uh, General Flynn has been announced as the Trump advisor, Trump campaign advisor. And that literally is days after that, Halper suddenly wants to you know, get in touch with me and, and have this dinner. Now, I then find out, so this is, this is early 2016. And then the next thing that happens is that, of course, I wasn't aware about this at that point, but we now had a very important document which was recently released. And it was released because Attorney General Barr has appointed a U.S. attorney from Connecticut, Jensen, to look into independently review the General Flynn case. And he has found the document, which is an FBI memo, which has been hidden from American public, from me, from General Flynn, from his lawyer for many, many years. And it's finally just recently been, de- been found and declassified. And that memo is a report from a confidential human source, Stefan Halper, who claims actually to have witnessed me to leave the Cambridge dinner with General Flynn. And he's very specific. He says, although he doesn't remember the date of the dinner, he says the only thing he can remember is that General Flynn was within still U.S. intelligence community, which is interesting, right? Because he's saying he's a witness to something and he can't even remember the date, not even the year of the event and he says that i jumped into a taxi after dinner that i jumped into he witnessed me jumping into a taxi with general flynn and getting into a train with him going to london with him and that i always was suspicious to stefan halper because he claims that i'm somehow connected to russian government now none of it is true so i didn't jump in the cab with flynn i didn't go to the train station i'm not connected to the russian government but the scary part about that is is actually he's lying to the FBI right because stefan halper wasn't at the dinner so he makes up a story in august 2016 about the dinner that happened in February 2014, which um, uh, he didn't attend. And another important fact about that is, um, you know, you just mentioned the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. So Stefan Halper, between 2015 and 2016, is is awarded uh, $720,000 in contracts from the Office of Net Assessment. So that's, you know, that's huge amount of money, specifically throughout 2016. And that money was apparently for some kind of academic studies, but nobody can actually find out what studies he did. And it appears that he's been basically paid to set up General Flynn and other Trump campaign advisors. Now, this devastating evidence of the events that he wasn't even wasn't even at actually becomes the predicate upon which the FBI opened an investigation into General Flynn for counterintelligence investigation, which is basically espionage. So in effect, General Flynn is accused of spying for Russia based on this false evidence by Stefan Halper. Now, it's it's even so specific because the Overall, Russia investigation crossfire hurricane starts on July 31st, 2016. Then on 10th of August, they open on Carter Page and Paul Manafort and George Papadopoulos. Uh, so that's on 10th. 
On 11th and 12th of August, we know from the Inspector General report that FBI meet with their informer, with their paid informer, Stefan Halper. And they provide uh, in the IG report a bit of background on Stefan Halper because previously Stefan Halper was fired from the FBI for questionable allegiance to an intelligence source for being aggressive towards his FBI controller and for demanding too much money. So that's just some of the things which you'd think that, you know, confidential human source um, on a sensitive investigation like that won't be suitable for. And then apparently he was rehired again and apparently he was on his last chance. And yet here we are where they um, um, uh, re-engage with him on the most sensitive investigation in U.S. political history. And they, he outright lies about General Flynn on 11th and 12th of August uh, 2016 because he says in the IG report, uh, we know from the IG report that he says that he knows General Flynn, except actually General Flynn never met him. Uh, uh, you know, General Flynn's uh, lawyer made that statement. And I can vouch for that because at least at the very least, I know he wasn't in Cambridge at, at the Cambridge dinner. So they didn't meet then. And But based on this completely false statement that I somehow, you know, seduced General Flynn, they start investigating General Flynn um, for, for espionage. And I knew about this for a very long period of time, because remember that this, the, the journalist, the media who attacked me, told me that that's the intelligence that they've seen. So, but we, of course, have only just recently got given the, 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 the actual FBI files. But, but Halper then, after the election, took the same lie and spread it around the media. And the false stories that I recruited General Flynn by blackmailing him. So I apparently seduced him. I recruited him. And then he started working for Russia. And they used that after the election to restart the investigation into General Flynn, the, the, the counterintelligence espionage investigation. And so the events that we all are familiar with in the last few weeks about how they continued investigating him, even though there was nothing wrong with his calls of Russian ambassador, etc., they're all based on this one lie that Halper told that I recruited General Flynn on behalf of Russian intelligence. The whole thing is a farce, but at the same time, General Flynn has been tortured for, um, you know, over three years with this. And of course, so has been my family. You know, the real target was uh, President Trump in all of this, because we had testimonies from people like John Brennan saying that he and other intelligence chiefs warned President Trump not to hire General Flynn and that basically President Trump was being accused in 2017 of putting a, a Russian asset into national security position. And that was the way of getting rid of uh, President Trump. Luckily, they didn't succeed, but they came very close. Yeah. And now you've done some meticulous research. We only have a couple of minutes and I also want to get to your lawsuit, the latest developments on that. But um, you've done some meticulous research that shows over one fateful week in August of 2016, how we went from the opening of the uh, Crossfire uh, Hurricane uh, investigation to adding uh, General Flynn as a new target. This is uh, the uh, on or around the week of August 10th through the 17th. Your your research is meticulous. You've pulled all of these government documents and it's well documented. It's, it's irrefutable what happened. Why don't you just talk real quickly? We have about five minutes. Just what happened during that fateful week of August 2016, how G General Flynn gets thrown into this investigation on what's basically a lot of false predicates. 
Right. And by the way, just speaking of meticulous research, I just want to point out, John, that I have been following your research uh, for many, many years. Uh, you were one of the first people, probably the first person who has been exposing this Russiagate hoax at the time where, you. you know, it was a very, very difficult time to speak out, right? And not only you were amazing at being, you know, the first person to do so, but also you always documented your findings, which meant that it made it easier for people like myself who wanted to figure out how their life got, you know, turned upside down. I used a lot of what you've written about and also a lot of documents that you found in order to, you know, for my own research. So thank you so much for, you know, oh, thank um, you. Those being are very kind words. And and telling the truth from the start, which which takes a lot of courage. Thank you. Those are very kind words. All right. August and, 10 through 17, the fateful week. I, I love the way you put this together. Why don't you just give us a quick overview of what happened? Sure. So what happens is that Stefan Halper is a paid FBI informer. And he has been paid in FBI inform for, informer for many, many years. Now, the FBI starts counterintelligence investigation on July 31st, and it's called an umbrella investigation, meaning they start investigating the whole Trump campaign on July 31st. Then on, uh, on August 10th, they open investigation on three specific Trump campaign members, which is Papadopoulos, Manafort, and Page, but not on General Flynn. Because remember, General Flynn is a huge target. As, for example, you have shown in your own research, General Flynn holds the highest security clearance in the land. It's called TSSCI clearance, which is Top Secret Secure Compartmentalized Intelligence Clearance. And so, and he is a recently retired head of Defense Intelligence Agency, and he's kind of the Trump's national security advisor. So this is the person that they dare to accuse of Russian espionage, right? Like, what evidence do they have? Now, on 10th of August, August 10th, General Flynn somehow gets inserted into the Christopher Steele dossier, which is interesting because obviously don't have time to go through this now, but my book, Spygate Exposed, demonstrates the connection with Christopher Steele. So I believe that Christopher Steele and Stephen Halper work together I believe that they coordinated their lies to make it look, to create circular reporting. So to make it look like they had intelligence coming from different sources, whereas in fact they were the same lies, just recycled. So Christopher Steele puts General Flynn into the Steele dossier by saying that he attended an event in Russia and that Kremlin at that point paid him money, and that's why General Flynn started working for the Russians. It's a lie, but that's what Christopher Steele says. And that's the same information that, that Halper gives to the newspapers, that I recruited General Flynn, and that I arranged his trips to Russia, and that I, I'm the woman who somehow got General Flynn paid to work on behalf of Russian Federation. Now, 10th of August, that information goes into the Steele dossier. And remember, of course, Steele then shares those memos at the same time with the FBI. On the same day, Stephen Sommer, case agent one, who's the handler of, of Halper, arranges a call and a meeting with Stephen Halper for the next day. Stephen Sommer goes to see Stephen Halper and Stephen Halper brings up General Flynn on that meeting. That's 11th of August. Then there is a second debriefing with Halper on the 12th of August and General Flynn is discussed. 
Then we have Thursday, Friday, which is uh, 13th and 14th of August. Then there is a text message between Peter Stroke, so that's FBI, Peter Stroke, a senior FBI agent, and Lisa Page, his lover, uh, also FBI, where they discuss insurance policy. And that insurance policy discussion, there's a bigger insurance policy about obviously not letting Trump win, but what happens if he wins. And specifically, Peter Stroke brings up the appointment of National Security Advisor, i.e. he's talking about Flynn. So this is on Monday, 15th of August. And on 16th of August, suddenly they start a espionage, counter-espionage investigation into General Flynn. And the only intelligence they have on General Flynn is the half a lie that I seduced General Flynn and that I work for Russian government, Russian intelligence. Because in the process of the, and we can see it from the FBI file, which was recently released on General Flynn, they go through General Flynn's whole past life including his trips to Russia, which were work trips, including uh, his speeches he made for which he got paid. And they go through them and they find nothing wrong with that. In fact, his clearance, TS, SCI top level clearance in the country, it gets renewed after he traveled to Russia. So there's no problem with him at all. The next thing they do is they check the databases, both within the uh, FBI and also with other agencies. The names of the agencies are redacted, but presumably there would be 17 intelligence agencies. And no derogatory information on General Flynn is found. And it is at that stage that they say that they go to the established CHS confidential human source, i.e. Stefan Halper, because remember, they meet with him in August. And that's where he said he witnessed me seducing General Flynn on behalf of Russians. And that's it. There's nothing else. And they take that information and they know that there are lies because Stefan Halper, you know, has been, you know, involved in many, many scandals throughout his life and, 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 and lied and cheated and was a dirty trickster. Uh, but it doesn't matter to them because that's the insurance policy. They they have the investigation open on General Flynn before the election so that if President, if candidate Trump, if, if, if in the unlikely event that candidate Trump becomes the president, they can reopen the investigation into General Flynn, into, his right, into Trump's right-hand man, which is what they end up doing. It is remarkable. It is that week that leads to the horrible attack on your reputation and, of course, the four-year ordeal that, that General Flynn has faced. We've got a minute left. I just want to uh, mention you've uh, you've been pursuing a lawsuit against Stefan Halper, against uh, the media who reported some of the stories about you, the false stories about you. Uh, you uh, got rejected at the district court level, but I see that you've taken the case to the appellate court level now. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, that's correct. So Stefan Halper conspired uh, with the media and the media, as we know, with Christopher Steele and with Stefan Halper played a huge role into the propelling the uh, Russiagate hoax into the public domain. And of course, remember, John, again, as what your research shows as well, is that the media actually is one of the three sort of sources they use in all this investigation. So it's always fake investigation. So it's always, um, you know, Christopher Steele with Stefan Halper, uh, so as if it's two different sources, but it's actually the same source. And then the media, the open source, they also use uh, to attack people uh, within the FBI. And then it gets back into the press. It's the circle reporting. And so the whole attack on me, I now know, 
uh, was completely entirely coordinated, and Stefan Halper was at the at the forefront of that. But we then have Washington Post, New York Times, NBC, and Wall Street Journal. You know all your usual RussiaGate hoaxes, and they all conspired. Um, and, and I'm hoping that in, you know through the through, through the court, um, I will be able to prove my case for everyone to see and finally clear my name. Well, we're going to be watching that case uh, uh, very closely because it's an important one. Um, Svetlana, I could spend all day talking to you. Your research has been impeccable on this. And, you know, on this show, we always give people the benefit of the doubt. So we've never heard yet from Mr. Halper. We hope one day the Senate committees will get his side of the story. We've tried several times to reach him without success. Uh, but from your your information is all derived from public government documents. You've been able to put this together really impressively. And um, I hope to have you back on the podcast sometime soon. I look forward to that. And thank you so much for having me on and for all the important work you're doing, John. Well, thank you very much. All right, folks, we're going to go to a commercial break and then wrap things up. So stay tuned. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And here we are to wrap things up. I hope you enjoyed that interview with, with Svetlana. She is a remarkable individual and academic. You can see how much research she's put into how she had her reputation maligned, how she fought back, how she pieced together all of the people who put this bad story together and uh, harmed her reputation. And um, she has a book out. You're definitely going to want to see that. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed this as we head into the 4th of July weekend. We thank you for your support. We thank you for joining us on this podcast, for reading us on justthenews.com. And uh, if you want to do something a little extra this weekend, there's a lot of things you can do to support our journalism. All the sponsors you hear on this podcast, uh, support them. Uh, buy their products because when you buy their products, you're essentially supporting us. And uh, also, if you're eager to go shopping this weekend, you want to try out a new store, a new experience, go to the new Just a New Shop. It's called JTNShop.com. All sorts of amazing gadgets and gifts, everything from delicious lobster and crab legs that you, you can have in a feast over the 4th of July to my all-time favorite, the Clean Phone Pro that gets rid of germs on your phone. Uh, there are earbuds that are really high quality and much cheaper than what you can get at the Apple Store. We've got lots of great products. And every time you buy one of them from jtnshop.com, a percentage of the proceeds comes to Just the News to support our reporting, our podcasting, our video and television work. We are so grateful and we can't wait to get started. All right. We'll have a happy 4th of July. We'll be back next week with a new round of exciting podcasts and interviews and exclusive news. Until then, be safe. Enjoy that 4th of July. Don't have too many hamburgers and hot dogs. Have a beer on me, though, for sure. And we'll be back next week. Thank you. Thank you.